How much joy is there in the hearts of other people in this world because of you? Do you think of generating joy in people's hearts as one of your responsibilities in life? Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. Here's your host, Dr. D. Richard Ferguson. Paul's going to give us two characteristics of gospel citizenship in this verse, and then two more that we'll save till next time in verses 28 to 30. The first one is going to take most of our time this morning because it's the most important, and it's the most important one, and it's the it's it's a key to understanding the whole book of Philippians. Very fundamental point here. The first thing you need to know about gospel citizenship is that it is characterized by unity. Unity. Gospel citizenship is unified. Um, Please notice the word then in verse 27, halfway through. Your Bible might say, so that. Um, Look at the connection. He says, whatever happens, live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. So, So you have this unity here. And, and, and that's um, a result of what comes before. Live as citizens, then you'll have unity. Do you see that? That's the flow of thought. One of the outcomes of living a life worthy of the gospel as citizens is unity. And, it, and the unity is emphasized. In the Greek, this is what they call a chiastic structure. It's um, uh, literally stand, standing firm in one spirit, in one soul, contending. So the, the one spirit and one soul are, are, are t- together. Um, in oneness of spirit and soul, we stand together, we contend together for the faith. I like the way the NIV puts it, contending as one man. We need to function as one body. Citizenship is a corporate concept. You know, um, I think that's another reason why Paul used this word for citizen. It's not the word you would expect. Normally, when when Paul is talking about day-to-day conduct, he'll use the word walk, right? That's what he usually says. Walk in a manner worthy. And I fully expected, when I was studying this, I was going to, I looked up the Greek word, I fully expected to be the word, perpetua, walk. Um, and I was surprised. It's not that word. He uses this citizenship term. And you can see that because he's, he's emphasizing unity, the corporate thing. See, if he said walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, you could picture doing that individually, right? Just on your own, when you think of your walk through life, that's your own personal individual walk. But when he says behave as a citizen, citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel, that forces us to think in a corporate way, right? The concept of citizenship is meaningless apart from community. This is a command you can't do on your own, live as a citizen. It's something that we have to do as a community. So if we, if we live up to the gospel, we will have oneness. We'll have oneness. That'll be the outcome. We'll have unity. And, and there's a couple aspects to that. We'll have oneness of, first of all, purpose, and second of all, oneness of heart. Okay? So let's think of each of those. First, oneness of purpose. Oneness of purpose means um, we... we uh, uh, um, 
we join forces to accomplish a shared goal. Okay, we we have to all know what our goal is. We have to have the same purpose as the church. Because if some of us are pulling off to the right and some are pulling off to the left, some are pushing forward and others are dragging their heels going back, then where are we going to go as a church? Nowhere. A lot of effort being put forth, but it's all pulling against each other so it doesn't get us anywhere. I hope you all have a clear understanding of what our purpose is here. Do you know what our purpose is at Agape Bible Church, what we're all about? We, we're, I'll tell you, we're all about three things, spiritual growth, evangelism, and worship. That's what we do. That sums it up. We exist to express, spread, and deepen delight in Christ. Um, deepening delight in Christ, that's spiritual growth. That's growing in the Lord. Uh, all of us loving God in a deeper way. Um, spreading delight in Christ, that's evangelism. More and more people loving God. And then expressing delight in Christ, that's worship. We exist to express, spread, and deepen delight in Christ. So we function as his household where brothers and sisters love one another and love the Father and submit to the Father as a household. That's that's the first part. Secondly, we function as his banquet table where we invite the uh, people from the highways and byways to come in. We compel them to come in. That's evangelism. Um, and to come in and feast and be satisfied. And we serve as his temple and priesthood where we offer acceptable worship that's what we do that's what our purpose is that's where we're going that's what we do and our way of doing it our method for accomplishing that we need to be unified on that too so we're not using different methods we got one here's our method our method is to apply the word of god to the hearts of men and women inside the household of god we do that carrying out the one another commands and to the world, we proclaim the gospel. And in worship, we fix our attention on the glory of God and respond to that. Right? that. Those are our methods. That's how we do it here. That's what we believe scripture calls for. We don't use other methods. We don't try to accomplish our goals through human means. We don't try to accomplish through entertainment or community service or giveaways or through politics or meeting felt needs or trying to get people to like us or, you know, whatever. We present the gospel, carry out the one another's within the church, apply the word of God to the hearts of men and women when we bow the, the, the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ in humble awe and reverent, reverent joyful worship. That's what we're all about. That's what we do. And that's how we do it. That's our purpose. That's our method. If you're on board with that, great. If you're not on board with that, train's leaving the station. I hope we can find a church that you agree with. But this is where we're going as a church. If we're going to be effective as a church, we have to know what we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish, and we've got to join forces and all of us put our backs into it, lean into it, and do it uh, all pushing in the same direction. That's what I mean by oneness of purpose. Okay, We need all that, but we also need, on top of that, oneness of heart. Um, we can't be at odds with each other. Turn, turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4. This is one of the great passages in all scripture about church unity. Very important passage. Ephesians 4. I'll just start reading from verse 1. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. 
So there's that live worthy thing again. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love and make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who's over all, in all and through all. So he's, he's, he's saying, we, we all believe in, this, in the same God, the same Lord, the same faith, the same hope, same baptism, same Holy Spirit, one body, one, why would we be divided? And yet, division is a constant problem in the church, right? So much so that look what he says at the beginning of verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity. Right? You gotta make every F possible effort. Why? Because if we don't make every possible effort to maintain our unity in this church, we will lose it. We will. It's that hard to keep. You say, what kind of effort is he talking about? How do you make a lot of effort to keep unity? Well, um, what are the bonds that hold us together in unity? He says in verse 3, the bond of what? Peace. Peaceful relationships. That's what holds us together. We maintain our unity by, by, by making every effort to reconcile broken relationships. How is that done? Verse 2. By being completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. That's what we got to do. In order to have organizational unity, we're going to have to have relational unity. We have to. It doesn't matter how much agreement we have on our purpose statement, mission statement, method statement, uh, doctrinal statement. We could just be all on board with that. But if we're at odds with each other, we're not going to have unity. We have to deeply love one another. We have to reconcile broken relationships. And that's that's why Satan attacks constantly our relationships. And it happens. It happens in every church. I was just uh, listening to John MacArthur. He is a quotation from... A while ago, because this is when he was at his church for 20 years. But he says this. He says, there isn't a day that goes by when the leadership isn't dealing with some relational conflict. We need to get these people together. We need to reconcile broken relationships. He said it was a constant onslaught. He goes on. He says, I've been here 20 years. I've never seen such an all-out attack on the unity of this church. We don't even understand it. We don't even know why it comes or where it comes from. There's no human, rational reason for it. Nobody's, nobody has run off with the money. Nobody is into adultery. Nobody's willfully violating what we know is to be biblical principles. And yet, there's all this upheaval. People are criticizing unjustly other people, blaming people, holding grudges against people, bitterness against people, terrible distrust and mistrust floating around all over that can't be identified or reasonably explained. All of it deadly to the church. I have seen it from the elder level down. You even have elders who resign and who leave the church, and we've had that. And it's inexplicable to me. He's like, there's, you can't, from a human standpoint, you can't understand why there would be so much problem with disunity. It doesn't, there doesn't have to be a particular crisis in a church to create disunity. It's just our natural flow. It's what the enemy is working towards. And the natural sinful impulses of the flesh put us at disunity with each other, Automatically, that's just our natural response. Whenever there's trouble, whenever there's hardship, we turn against each other. And so we have to make every effort to resist those impulses and to restore broken relationships. Because Paul's very clear. We need this in order to stand firm. You go back to Philippians 1. We have to have this unity in order to stand firm. We're not going to stand if we lose our unity. 
We're at war. And if we, if we become a scattered force, we're going to fall. Jesus is very clear. Kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided itself against itself cannot stand. If we lose our unity at agape, we will fall to the enemy. He will win. We will lose. Jesus said the gates of hell can't prevail against the church in general, but against individual fellowships, it often does prevail. And it will prevail against us, definitely, if we're not one. This is why we've been making such a big deal about peacemaking principles. The enemy is constantly going after our unity by trying to mess up our relationships. And if we just do what comes naturally, we are going to fight. We are going to get mad. We're going to destroy ourselves. Or or we'll go in the other direction and just uh, pretend there's peace when there's not. We just won't address it. That's what the uh, inclusive ecumenical churches do. You know, the pastor just gets up and preaches a lot of feel-good sermons that never say anything that anybody could possibly disagree with. So everybody walks away with their own beliefs being affirmed. And there's there's actually all kinds of disunity in a church like that, but it's all under the rug. Not allowed to talk about it. We're not going to talk doctrine. We're not going to talk anything that, about anything that might start an argument or a conflict. Churches like that are like a team sports team that has more team spirit than any other team in the league. But if you talk to the players, you find out they don't even agree on what sport they're playing. And they look great in team pictures, but that's about it. There's no way they could ever win an actual game because they are a peace-faking church. On the other extreme is the peace-breaking church where we just pick at each other and bite and devour each other, gossip, complain, grumble against each other, backbiting, fault-finding. Oh, what is this? Whose fault is this? You know, I get uh, Blaming, criticizing, assuming bad motives, arguing, bickering, grudges, unforgiveness. And again, no matter how much we agree on, a do- on doctrine, we get that stuff going on, we're done. We're not going to have unity. And where there's no unity... We're not living up to the gospel. We're not living worthy of the gospel. That's why when the elders, when we got together, we spent most of 2015 just seeking God and asking, show us what priorities do you want? Where do you want us to go? And we landed on those four things. And the first one, culture of encouragement. We've talked about that. Second one I introduced last week. That's the joyful servanthood. That's a big one. And the third one, unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. When somebody in the church does something that bothers you, be very, very careful how you respond. Realize what's at stake. There are no relationships in the church that you can afford to throw away. There are no relationships where you can afford to just kick kick them around and mistreat them. And you can't afford to do that. You can't say, well, I don't like him. I think I'll just stay on the other side of the church. Not, you know, they'll just avoid him and I'll get in a different service or something. These are your brothers and sisters forever. They are part of God's household. And the father of this household has commanded that you love them all deeply from the heart. And the success or failure of your purpose as a human being on this planet is very much connected with how well you're able to cooperate 
and work with the rest of the body. Because if you're a Christian, your purpose in life happens to be a team sport. So when somebody does something that you don't like, they do something to hurt you or belittle you, think long and hard about how you respond because going forward you need two things. There's two things you need. Number one, you need closeness with that person. You can't sacrifice the relationship. You're going to have to reconcile with them. Be careful how much you damage the relationship because the more you damage it, the more the harder and more painful it's going to be for you to go and reconcile because you're going to have to reconcile. So keep that in mind. You're going to need closeness with that person. And secondly, you're going to need that person's joy to be intact. In order for you to have success as part of the body of Christ, in order for the body of Christ to have success, we have to have joy. That person's joy needs to stay intact. If your teammates start losing their joy, that's going to affect the whole team. So so always ask, okay, I was just offended. I was just hurt. How can I address the problem in a way that's going to cultivate the greatest possible intimacy with this person long term going forward? And what's the greatest possible joy that they could have going forward? What response is likely to do that? And the rule of thumb is just simply this. Ask yourself, is the way I'm about to respond to this worthy of the gospel of Christ? Is my attitude towards him worthy of the gospel? The way you respond when one of us hurts you, disappoints you, insults you, hinders your ministry, ignores you, belittles you, your response, inside and out, must be fitting and appropriate for what you claim to believe, the gospel. That's why Jesus told us that if you're worshiping and there suddenly you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, go and be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. That's, it's that urgent. Our, stand, our, our standard for living is to live in a way that's fitting for the gospel. And what is the gospel? Isn't it a message of reconciliation? 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Gospel's all about reconciliation, and an unreconciled people don't advertise it very well. We can't invite people into the household of God and say, hey, join our family. Here's a bulletproof vest. You'll need that. That's the wrong message. Jesus said they will know that we are his disciples by what? The way we love one another. How is that going to... I mean, think about that for a second, because atheists love their buddies. Right? Atheists love people that are nice to them. Our love for one another has to go way beyond that. So what does it mean to live out our citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, if you want to know what gospel citizenship looks like, number one, gospel citizenship is unified. Today's podcast is an excerpt from a sermon I delivered in February of 2016. By the end of that same year, the church was dead, shut down. And it was because of disunity. I said in the message that disunity could kill a church, and I said, even this church. But even though I said that, it really didn't seem to me at the time that it could really ever happen to that church. 
We were a growing church plant in our seventh year, about 450 people. We had, uh, had just opened a second campus. I knew from Scripture that a church could die from disunity, but it was just one of those things. You know, you believe because the Bible says it, but it just doesn't seem true. But it happened, and it didn't take much. Some people didn't get the leadership positions they wanted. A couple other people got disgruntled. They started sowing all kinds of seeds of disunity, and some other problems came up, and the church collapsed in a matter of months. When God's Word warns of the dangers of disunity, or warns of anything else for that matter, never take God's warnings lightly. You're not responsible for all the relationships in your church, but you do bear responsibility for your part in the ones you're involved in. So how are your relationships? How about in your family? It's the most natural thing in the world to fix your attention on how others have wronged you, and it's the least natural thing to look at every interaction with people with an attitude that says, my life and the church as a whole will be better off if this person is joyful. What response could I have that would be most likely to stimulate joy in the Lord? And what about the relationships around you? Do you know of any relationships, any situations where some peacemaking is needed? Remember, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And James 3.18 says, Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Father, you called Paul and his associates to be workers for our joy. And by implication, you've called all ministers of the gospel to work for the joy of your people. Thank you, Lord, for the people you called and gifted and prepared to work for my joy in you. Without them, I wouldn't have any idea how to have joy in you. Without them, I wouldn't have any idea how to find joy in you. I want to do that for the people around me, Lord. Show me how to successfully work for my wife's joy in you and my children and their families and my siblings and the friends you've sent my way. Show me ways I can respond to them, interact with them, pray for them, and encourage them that will kindle the fires of their happiness in you. Make me a constant, never-ending fountain of the good news of great joy for all peoples. Let it ooze out of my pores. And for the unbelievers in my life, Father, you know the people I have in mind. Please, rescue them from the dominion of darkness like you did with me. Open their eyes to your glory, Father, so that they might be like the man in the parable who was so full of joy he couldn't wait to sell all he had to gain the great treasure that he had found. May all your saints around me be glad and rejoice before you. May they be happy and joyful. May my message to them always be, Sing to God, you his holy ones. Sing praise to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord. And rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, 
is God in his holy dwelling. He sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Let all who take refuge in you be glad, Father. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround us with your favor as with a shield. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I have set you always before me. Because you are at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Thank you for listening. If you found today's episode edifying, why not share it with a friend? This season of the Food for Your Soul podcast features excerpts from our sermon series on the book of Philippians, 50 expository sermons covering every verse. You can find those and hundreds of other sermons for free download on drichardferguson.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.